Does anybody like scenic drives? You go out of your way to see a beautiful countryside? Great. Has anyone gone somewhere just to take a scenic drive? Yeah, a few of you? Great. When Christy and I celebrated our fifth anniversary, a few years ago, we went to the Northwest. We met some friends in Seattle, and then we drove to the coast. We followed the peninsula out and then drove all the way down the coast of Washington and down some of the coast of Oregon. It was just beautiful country. It was great. Has anyone ever regretted a scenic drive? Yeah. When I was growing up, we were in Colorado. We had visited the Royal Gorge Bridge by Canyon City. And there was a scenic drive there called the Skyline Drive. Has anyone ever tried that? Yes. I don't know whose idea it was, if it was my mom's or my dad's. Um, But this is what it looks like. You get up on this cliff, and they're not straight drop cliffs, but the road is 800 feet above the valley floor, one way, and there's little margin for error. Uh, And again, I don't remember if it's my mom's idea or my dad's idea, but my dad was driving, and one of them did not like it. I thought it was great. Uh, It was really cool. Um, But, uh, you know, sometimes we take scenic drives, sometimes we don't. Many of you would raise your hand you don't like scenic drives, or did not raise your hand that you like them. Uh, Sometimes we don't want the scenic drive. Sometimes the longer route is not more scenic, it's just longer. Um... And sometimes we're impatient. Sometimes we just want to get where we're going. The scenic route is not an option. The normal route's not an option. We've got to take a shortcut. Or we've got to speed. Maybe some of you have met our friendly in-house state trooper on the road. Whatever it takes to get us where we want to go. And there are times we miss out on something that is worth the scenic drive. We miss out on something that is worth the wait If you'll look with me this morning in Isaiah chapter 30, I want to see that God is patient even when his people are not. Let's pray about this as we begin. God, we pray that you will give us grace as we look into your word this morning. And we ask that even now you would be working in us to create greater patience this morning. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin in verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. God's people can be impatient. Judah is here. And when we say impatient, we could mean a couple different things. We could mean that they, Judah, want the right thing. They just want it sooner than God is bringing it about. They, they want it now. And maybe God is just taking longer. We also could mean that God's people, having waited, have given up on God. They might still want the same thing, but they aren't looking to get it from him. I think when we take a look at this part of Judah's story, that's what we see, that second reality there. 
In his opening statement, God says his people are stubborn. They're carrying out a plan that is not his. They're doing something of their own. They're making an alliance that is not of his spirit. This alliance, this brings a political picture in here, and I, I know we've looked at several different chapters in Isaiah, different political scenarios at play, so I want to see if I can help make sure we know what we're talking about here. We've looked at two different people of Israel, the ten tribes in the north, Israel, and then also the two tribes in the south, Judah. Two weeks ago, we were looking at chapters 9 through 12, we were looking at Israel, the ten tribes in the north, and they had made an alliance with another country, an enemy country, named Syria. And they did this to protect themselves against another rising power in the north, Assyria. If I can illustrate this for you, Israel, the lamb, or this time the black sheep of the family, made an alliance with Syria, the jackal, to protect itself from the wolf, Assyria. Last week, we were looking at chapter 7, King Ahaz of Judah, the south, the sheep there, was fearful of this jackal and this black sheep. The black sheep was supposed to be his brother, but it was turning on him. That's why God came and said, I promised, this jackal will not harm you. Syria will not destroy you, and I'll, I'll show you whatever you want. I'll prove it to you. But King Ahaz refused, and instead of trusting in God to protect himself from the jackal, he made an alliance with the wolf, Assyria in the north. Made an alliance with the wolf to protect himself from the jackal. And in so doing, saved his skin for a little while, helped Assyria destroy Syria, helped the wolf destroy the jackal. With the jackal gone, then Israel, the black sheep, was unprotected and was soon devoured. In chapter 10, Judah was promised that they would not just survive the jackal, but they would also survive the wolf. And it seemed that Ahaz's political calculations had, had made that happen, but only for a few years. Now in chapter 30, we find Judah the lamb quivering with fear again as the wolf is howling. In chapter 36, we find the wolf outside of Jerusalem, at the door. And that's where we see this crisis of Judah's impatience. To protect themselves against the wolf, they now are tempted to turn to another enemy, Egypt, the serpent, an even deadlier and proven killer. Remember, Egypt is where Israel, the people of Israel, spent hundreds of years in slavery. Thousands of them died in Egypt. And this is who they are courting as an ally. Is Judah wrong? Can we blame them? They just want to be safe and secure. They just want to survive. And that's what God promised them, right? Is this just an issue of time that God should speed things up so they don't have to make this decision? No, I think it's past a time issue now. They've gotten to the point where they have given up on God. The safety, the security, the survival, they want all good things. They're now willing to shop around for the lowest bidder. Who can provide that? Who can deliver that to them? Uh, and if you'll allow me, I want to introduce a, a different analogy here. Picture Judah like a ship, not a sheep, but a ship or 
if it's easier for you, just a big floating sheep in the water. <laughs> They're afloat in the ocean, open sea, and there's a storm on the horizon. And their God comes to them and says, there is a safe harbor for you, a place I've created where you will be safe and secure and you will survive, where you can be my people. It's a little ways off, but it's real, and I will make sure you get there. Beautiful place of rest and safety, a harbor. And they believe him. But as the time goes on, it takes longer and longer to get there. The storm seems closer. And now Judah is convinced that they will not make it in time. So what do they do? They start looking for any harbor. That's what God describes in verse 2. They set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and seek shelter in the shadows of Egypt. There are three big dangers with impatience, at least three, you might think of more. Three big dangers with impatience. There's the time issue, there's the trust issue, and then the treasure issue. We've been talking about time. The fundamental issue with patience is time. Simply, we want what we want when we want it. But as simple as that is, that's the beginning of a very dangerous road. We're assuming here that the things that we want are good to begin with. Whole other conversation, other questions if the things that we want are not good. But Judah here, they want safety and security. That's what God told them is a good thing. And God has told us many good things that we should want. Things that are good because they're found in him. Marriage and family and sex, financial security, a home of your own, successful children, a healthy church family, a culture that understands right and wrong and a government that operates that way, spiritual growth, a love for his word, a healthy body that works, opportunity to enjoy the good things that God has created. God has told us those are all good things. But like Judah, when these things don't happen in our expected time frame, Impatience sets in. And fundamentally, we're saying in our hearts, I want them now. I believe I should have them now. I believe I should have them when I want them because I want them. If God was really a good God, he would have given them to me by now. Or he might be saying, if I were God, I would have done it this way. I believe I would have been a better God. Very quickly, and easily, the issue of time takes us to imagining ourselves as better gods. And it doesn't easily stop there. If we're already willing to doubt that God is doing his job well, we, and we consider we might do it better, we find it easy to put our trust in something else. Whatever will fulfill our desire. Like Judah. So 
not, impatience is not just a time issue, it's a trust issue. We will shop around for whatever will give us what we want when we want it. When you want peace in your home and it's not happening, when you want it, you might be tempted to do whatever Dr. Phil or Oprah say about how you should resolve conflict. Or you might listen to Marie Kondo about how to have peaceful space in your home. When you want this country to change and it isn't happening, and all those things out there just getting worse and getting bigger in your mind's eye, you might find it much more easy to get excited about what Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity or Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson have to say than what God's word says. Do the people in your workplace or that see your social media know that you believe Jesus is the savior of the world and not one of these political figures who almost entirely deny Christ? Impatience for marriage and love and intimacy can lead you to settle for the wrong spouse or set you up to fall to any number of sexual temptations, what you want, when you want it. You want to grow and change. You want to love God's word more. You want to be a better spouse, a better parent. But change isn't happening overnight. So instead of praying, instead of the work of renewing your mind in truth, or the discipline of denying the flesh and trusting in the spirit. You're tempted to put confidence in your own flesh. I can do this. I can follow a Bible reading plan. I can be the better person I want to be. You stop wanting the fruit of the spirit and you're just going for the fruit of me. Are you trusting in something other than God to give you what you want, even if it's a good thing? Are you shopping around for the lowest bidder? Will any safe harbor do? The other danger with impatience is that it can change what we treasure, what our heart loves. What had started out for Judah as a good desire, trusting in God's revelation to them that there was safety in him, was tested by time. They were waiting, they didn't get the fulfillment of their desire when they wanted it, and now they don't want to be God's people anymore. They just want to survive. That The kernel of that desire of safe harbor in, in God's time to be God's people has been reduced and corrupted. Just We just got to survive. And we, when things don't happen when we want them, we hold more tightly to those desires. And then we want them because we want them. It's not because God told us they're good, it's because we have determined this is good for me, like Eve plucking the fruit from the tree. And so the things that we want become our treasures instead of the God who created those things. Good things instead of the giver of those good gifts. And it also can become true that we become what we treasure. We've decided the when, the timeline instead of God. And we've decided who can deliver on the promise. If not God, then someone else, even ourselves. We 
are really treasuring ourselves. We decided the what, the when, the how. We are what we love. So impatience is not just a time issue. It can easily become a trust issue and then a treasure issue, a worship and idolatry issue. And what comes of this? What comes of Judah's misplaced trust? First of all, Judah finds failure. It's, it's fruitless. Their trust is misplaced. Egypt, the serpent, is described in verse 7 here. Worthless and empty. I will call her Rahab who sits still. Rahab, literally translated, is boastful, big talker. Someone who's talking big, but they're sitting still. Egypt was nowhere to be found when Assyria was laying siege to Judah. They did not make good on their promise. False gods never do. Idols never satisfy and never fulfill what they promise. A misplaced trust is not just fruitless, it also is harmful. It's not just that you're left with nothing, it's you're worse off than when you started. Verse 12, God tells them what they thought was freedom is actually oppression. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression. They thought they were trusting in safety, but it's now enslaving them. I described earlier Egypt as a serpent. And the picture I have in my mind, it's, uh, another preacher I heard speak on this, uh, put this picture in my mind, it's not original. This picture of the character Ka from the Jungle Book. You know who that is in the, in the classic Disney movie, The Boa Constrictor. He's after Mowgli, and when he finds him, he starts wrapping his coils around him. He's hypnotizing him with his eyes, and while he's trying to wrap him up and crush him and kill him, he sings a song. What does he say? Trust in me. This is what Egypt is saying to Judah. This is what any false hope, any harbor that is not the safe harbor of God, says to us, trust in me, all the while plotting our destruction. When Assyria comes knocking on Jerusalem's door, they taunt Judah and they say, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Judah thinks they can lean on Egypt like a staff, but it's broken, and the broken part will pierce them. It's not safety, it's harm. And all of this adds up to Judah's shame. Because they sold out their God to the lowest bidder, there is shame and disgrace. Verse 3, Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Verse 5, Everyone comes to shame through people who cannot profit them. That brings neither help nor profit but shame and disgrace. Our culture has a very interesting relationship with shame. We're not a shame and honor culture like an oriental eastern culture, but we are averse to shame. We, we avoid it like the plague. At all costs, do not do anything, do not listen to anything that would make you feel bad about something you've done. We have this phraseology Shaming something, body shaming, mommy shaming, anything can be shaming now, any negative word. 
um, gotten my kids hooked on uh, an interesting TV show from, I think, the 80s, from England. Anybody know Mr. Bean? All right, Mr. Bean. He's a simple man. We don't know much of what he wants out of life. There's one thing that is clear. He doesn't want to look like a fool. He avoids, if at all possible, looking like an idiot. But try as he might, and the harder he tries to not look like a fool, the more foolish he looks, the more idiotic he is, which makes for great comedy. Um, we are averse to shame in that way. And we all feel it. Maybe you have those memories embedded in your, in your mind, the times you felt embarrassed or shamed about something you did, and you hope no one else remembers them. When I was in college, I started working at a pharmacy, and I was learning, learning lots of stuff about the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and one Sunday at the church we were going to up there, one of the families had us over for, for lunch and asked me about my job, so I began to wax eloquent about the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, and even throw in my opinions, which I had just recently inculcated from all the pharmacists, that uh, in the broader medical industry, it'd be much better if the pharmacists were the ones that prescribed the medication. And then I found out that my kind hostess was a medical doctor. <laughs> and that was 15 years ago, maybe. Has burned in my brain. I was shamed for my arrogance, my ignorance. And I hope no one else remembered that, but I certainly did. We need to understand shame, though. Uh, last week, when Keith Easton was here, he mentioned in relationship to fear that we need to understand that feelings, our feelings, our emotions tell us things. They tell us what is going on in our relationship with God. Fear, shame also, and shame is a feeling. We need to make sure that's different than guilt. Sometimes we confuse those two, we say I feel guilty. We actually are feeling shame. Guilt is an objective reality, you're guilty or you are not. You did something wrong or you didn't. And when we do something wrong, then we feel shame. Sometimes our calibrations off and we feel shame for things that we shouldn't, but we need to Listen to shame. Feelings, shame, fear, other things are like thermometers that tell us there's something going on inside you that you need to look at. When we feel shame, we need to listen. We need to investigate. Am I feeling this way because I did something wrong? What is going on between me and God here? What did I do that is bringing this about? And if we ignore shame, if we avoid it like the plague, don't say anything to me that would make me feel bad about something I did. And we're like Mr. Bean, just trying harder and harder not to look stupid, and we're gonna end up more and more foolish. We must be careful to tr listen to shame. We must be careful what we trust in to deliver what we want when we want it. These false harbors, harbors will not just fail to deliver they will oppress, they will harm us, and they will bring shame. Something else that happens here 
when impatience comes in and it leads to a shift of trust. God's people may be tempted to give lip service to God's word. Look in verse 9 through 11 with me. They are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to seers, do not see, and the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right, speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. So Judas is not, Judah is not just impatient, they're not just trusting in the wrong thing, now they are manipulating God's word to justify themselves. They're unwilling to hear the instruction from the Lord. The prophets are supposed to be the ones that say what God tells them to say. But here they are telling the prophets, don't tell us that, don't tell us what is right. Commentator Alec Motier described Judah this way, instead therefore of what is right, they want things which will leave the surface of life unruffled. A ministry of trifles. They did not want the direction or style of life altered, and in particular, they did not want to hear of a holy God living among them and exerting pressure on them. They did not ask that preaching cease, only that it be innocuous, without the absolutes of truth and morality which derive from the character of God. So while they're selling out, Judah still wants to look like God's people. They still want to hear the prophets, but only what affirms them, only what doesn't convict them. I have to say, though, if you don't like the word of the Lord, the problem's you, right? But it's not just an ancient Israel problem. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The time is coming. We can probably see a lot of ways it's here. It's not just people. We are tempted, like Judah, to justify ourselves, to give our actions a shiny veneer to manipulate God's word, to cover ourselves when we have misplaced our trust. We become impatient. I was watching an online video a couple weeks ago, training for biblical counseling, and the instructor said an interesting thing about the average person who comes in for counseling. And I, I think it's true of more than just counselees. I think it has some truth for the average person who comes to church and what they expect out of the Christian life. He said this, he said they don't want to change, they want to keep doing what they're doing and have you show them how to get better results. Are you seeking God's word just to get better results as long as it doesn't ruffle the surface? Are you sailing your ship towards the harbor of your choosing? Are you tacking on God's word to make it look like you're on a noble, spiritual journey. Using phrases like, well, I prayed about it. I believe it's God's will. 
even though you've not searched God's will, God's word to discern the truth of that. Say something like, God would want me to be happy. We must be careful that we don't manipulate God's word to justify our impatience, our trust, our idolatry. It's interesting to note in verse 11 here, we look at verse 11, this is when Judah says, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. What's the next phrase? Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. It doesn't matter what Judah wants to hear. God is going to do what he's going to do. He's going to say what he's going to say. He continues the rebuke for a few more verses, but then he reminds them of who he is and that he is waiting. God is patient even when his people are not. God is patient and he keeps his word. Verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore the Lord exalts himself to show mercy to you. God waits. He is patient. Even when his people aren't. He waits to be gracious to fulfill his promises, to deliver on the goods that he has promised, to bring them to the safe harbor that he told them about at the beginning. And to quote Motier again, the faithfulness with which he punishes his people for spurning his word is the faithfulness with which he commits himself to the word he has spoken. It doesn't matter what Judah says or wants to hear. God will do what he promises. He reminds them again of the remnant that will return to Zion, verse 19. In verse 19, he will hear their cries. He will hear their prayers. Verse 20, they will see their Lord. Verse 21, he will guide them. Verse 22, he will lead them away from idolatry to true worship. Part of this is interesting. The it says, uh, where verse was it? Sorry, this, verse 22. No, this is why you don't do ad hoc comments. Since I started, I gotta go. Hmm. <laughs> There, verse 29, that's what I'm looking for. Verse 29, you will have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept. Do you guys know what holy feast happened in night in Israel? Passover. Be, there's something to come, true worship, holy feast, like the Passover, but better than the Passover. God will restore them to true worship. God will be the treasure of their hearts. They won't just want safety and security because they want them, they will want them because they are found in their God and being his people. Verse 20 says, they will see their Lord, you shall see your teacher. When they get to the safe harbor that he promised, what will they see? They will see him. He is not just the person who will get them there, he is the shore of their salvation. We just sang that. He's not just worth trusting in, because he'll deliver what, we, what was promised, he is their safe harbor. 
He is the, the treasure of their hearts. And when God is our treasure, he's the only one that we can trust in to fulfill our desire. And when we treasure and trust him, we can wait, right? But, hold that thought. Another word used here in this chapter for waiting and trusting is rest. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. The parallel idea there, trust and rest. If we are trusting, we are able to rest. We're not striving in our own strength. So, Different than the picture that Egypt, of Egypt being the broken reed that would break when it was leaned on, God is a sturdy staff that we can lean on. We can rest in when we are trusting. But you might be asking, but if the harbor is where the rest is found, how can Judah rest until she gets there? If the good thing I'm looking for is not happening yet, am I supposed to rest now until I get there? Can we rest in God this side of heaven, this side of everything being right when there will be rest? Can we rest now? Can we rest while we wait for the good things that God does bring in our life? The here and the now, the marriage, family, spiritual growth, church growth, a new pastor. Can we rest the call to be patient is not just wait longer and eventually some good things will come. The call to wait on God is to rest now, even without everything we want, even without everything being set right. Hebrews talks about this and uses our same word picture, the ship and the harbor, to illustrate this for us. In Hebrews chapter 6, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus describes him first as an anchor and then as a forerunner. In the ancient naval world, when ships would come to a Greek harbor, it was shallow, it was low tide, they couldn't get in yet because their draft was too deep. They would have to wait. They'd have to wait in the open ocean where there were still large waves and winds blowing. They wanted to be safe, but they were still stuck out in, the, out in the open sea. So they would put their anchor in a smaller boat, and that boat would sail into the harbor, and it would deposit the anchor in safety, in the safe harbor. So even though the ship could not get there yet, it would not be blown about by the open sea had an anchor in safety. You know what they called that boat? Called that boat a forerunner. Jesus is our forerunner. By paying the debt of sin that we owe on the cross and defeating death by rising again, he has placed the anchor of everyone who believes in him in that safe harbor. Even though we're not there yet, we have safety. We place the anchor, this verse says, behind the veil, behind the curtain. We just sang, 
my anchor holds within the veil. It's in the presence of God. It is secure. And because we know that anchor is secure, we can rest. We can lean. We can trust. We can rest knowing that we will definitely make that harbor. We might not know when, but we will definitely make it there. And we can rest knowing that the God who promised us safe harbor and placed the anchor there will care for us while we wait. Romans 8 tells us, He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us good things? He's taking care of our biggest need. Of course he'll take care of us while we wait. We sang this this morning also. See his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor. It will never be removed. We can rest knowing that even if nothing else good comes in this life, this side of heaven, while we wait, even if nothing else good comes, our greatest need is taken care of. We can rest. So in this way, resting is his own reward. Like a spiritual scenic drive. Author John Blanchard says, waiting for an answer to prayer is often part of the answer. While we wait, we're reminded we're not God. We don't have to be. We don't have to strive. We can rest. We can remember and we can realize we have everything we already need. Anything else is just blessing upon blessing. If we have nothing else, we still have our greatest need taken care of. So we rest. We lean. We trust in him. Let's pray. God, you are worthy to be trusted, worthy to be leaned upon. You keep your word and you're patient with us when we doubt, when we don't trust you, when we place our trust in something else. God, we ask for grace to trust in you, to rest in you, that we will make that safe harbor that Christ has secured for us. We ask for your grace to rest now as we wait. In Jesus' name, amen.